Start out with a really tough quiz this morning, okay? I'm sure this illustration will be so deep, it'll be over our head, but how many of you know what this is? What is it? Oh, it's not just a glove. It's a work glove. It's a work glove. It's designed uniquely for doing work. They got extra fiber in certain spots, elastic fiber in other spots. It's a work glove, and I really appreciate that work glove. It's designed to work. So I'm going to ask that work glove if it would just bring that music stand over here for me. Not so good. You know, I think what that work glove needs is just a little bit more encouragement. So if you would with me, we can just encourage that glove. Come on, try harder. You got this. It'll work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, obviously that didn't work either. Encouragement didn't do the trick. I bet if we would take some time, and I don't have that time, but I bet if we took a little more time in training that glove, discipling it even one-on-one, we could make that glove. If I promised to train that glove, you know, would you bring that? No, it's not going to happen, is it? I know what it needs. This is the answer to everything for us Christians. It needs fellowship. Okay, nothing. Fellowship isn't working either. You're kind of starting to get the point. You know what it really needs? It needs to rededicate itself to its task of being a work glove. Commit itself, come on. And nothing happens. You know, this glove... Though it's uniquely designed for work, it has the capacity to do work until a living hand is put in it. It can't do a thing. It takes life. It takes a living hand. Now this glove could do some work. Limited by me, but it could do some work. It could pick this thing up and bring it over. A lot of us as Christians... We're like that work club. We are built and designed with a capacity to accomplish things for the kingdom of God. We have the ability. We've been given strengths. We've been given giftings. We are designed by our maker in his image to do good things for the kingdom of God. But until life enters into us, Our efforts in our own flesh are futile. And that life that enters into us is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit should change everything. When the Holy Spirit moves into a believer's life at salvation, we're a new creation in Christ, and that's awesome. There's going to be improvements along the way, and that's painful, but it's still awesome. But the reality is, the power of God that spoke and created the universe and everything that exists in it, the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and resurrected Him lives in us. This power is in each one of us as a believer to accomplish all that God has designed us to do. The Holy Spirit. He's not an it. He's not a thing. He's not some ethereal thing we can't put... He's a person and He lives in us. It's the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus lives in us. And He can do anything. 
Our goal is to cooperate and not get in the way, be obedient, and do what He wants us to do. We have a task as a the church. Not as just Victory Church, but as the church, a group of believers. We have a task that He's commanded us to go and do. And it's going to look differently for every single one of us. But He will empower us by the Holy Spirit. And He has given us an authority in the name of Jesus to go and do what He wants us to do. Use your gifts. Use your talents. As He sees fit wherever He leads us. So in the book of Acts, we're really I'm focusing on, especially these first few chapters, primarily on trying to see what the Holy Spirit is doing in all of these pages that we might have read many, many times. And maybe we just kind of glossed over the Holy Spirit's significant role in all of it. In Acts 1, verse 8, we started there last week. I just want to hit this verse and focus on one quick thing. In Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus has, has, is left. He's ascended. and he's, 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 well, he's leaving and He's going to ascend. And He tells the disciples, you got this big job. You're going to go turn the world upside down. You're going to build My church. He's going to do all of this. But He says, don't go anywhere until the power comes. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth or the uttermost parts of the earth. That word power there, dunamis, and we may have heard it means it's usually translated ability or power, strength. That's how it's translated. But if you look in a lexicon, the first meaning that will be listed is something like this. It is inherent power within you because of the nature of you, how you exist. In other words, it's an inherent power. The Holy Spirit is going to be put in you. And it's going to be put in you so that you can accomplish what the source of that power wants to accomplish. So he's saying to the disciples really is, don't go do, I'm going to give you this big job. It's overwhelming and in your flesh you'll fail miserably. But I'm going to give you a power. It's going to be inherent in you. The Holy Spirit is going to live in you and you're going to be able to go representing me and accomplish what I've called you to do. And then when you look at the next places where they're supposed to go, and we've all heard this, I know, but to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We usually say something like your local city, which it is, maybe the state of Minnesota, then to the United States, and then to the world. But there's something I think I often miss, or we might miss, is he's telling these guys, these disciples, these followers of his, you're going to go to Jerusalem. And in the back of their mind, I can't imagine that they're not thinking, are you kidding me? 42 days ago, they killed Jesus here. And we're supposed to go share the good news of Jesus here? 42 days ago, they were marching you out to a cross and going to kill you. And then there's Judea, the area surrounding Jerusalem. Jesus, you walked around out here and you did miracles like crazy. Just a few miles up the hill, you raised Lazarus from the dead and they rejected you. Now we're going to go there? Samaria. You know, David Guzik, some of you are familiar with him from the Blue Letter Bible, he put it this way, the Samaria, Samaritans were regarded as a wasteland of impure half-breeds. That's where you want us to go, Lord? These Samaritan dogs, 
And then to the uttermost parts, and Guzik writes this great too, I love this. He says, this is to the Gentile world, right? And he says, Gentiles were thought by many Jews to be nothing better than fuel for the fires of hell. So this is where Jesus is telling these guys that's where they're going to go. Where, we're, where we are called to go, do we need any less power than they needed? We can be really intimidated by our Jerusalem, by our Judea, by our Samaria, Samaria, and certainly to the uttermost parts of the world. There's some places I don't want to go. But God's saying, there is an inherent power in you as believers that will, notice when that verse, I don't know if it's still up on the screen or not, but it says, and you will be my witnesses. Not you might be, you could be, you have the potential to be, no, you will be. The Holy Spirit primary task is to bring glory and honor to Jesus and transform us into His image. So it's like Jesus saying, He's in you unless you squelch it, unless you ignore Him, unless you completely disobey Him, you are going to be My witnesses. You can't help it. Because the Holy Spirit in you is in you to give you power to do it. We just need to cooperate. The Holy Spirit's role. So we're going to look at, look at the Holy Spirit again as we move forward. If you remember, I guess it's a couple of weeks ago at least, we talked about the day of Pentecost. And then the day of Pentecost occurred, and baptism of the Holy Spirit, tongues of appearing as fire, etc., etc., and they get accused of being drunk at nine in the morning. And Peter rises up. What in Peter caused him to rise up? The Holy Spirit. The power of God is in him and he rises up and he gives this sermon. This powerful sermon by the power of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit in him. And when he starts to speak, there's a primary message early and throughout these next few chapters that you hear. There was one primary thing that they emphasized over and over and over and over. And you know what it was? The resurrection. The resurrection. They didn't talk about His miracles. They talked about the resurrection that we are all witnesses to. We're eyewitnesses. You can't deny it. The resurrection. In, in Acts 2, verse 23 and 24, it says, This man, Jesus is who He's referring to, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, the resurrection, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The resurrection. In verse 32 it says, God has raised this Jesus. There he is, the resurrection. And we are all witnesses of this fact. The Holy Spirit in Peter, this power in Peter, anointing him to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. For us looking back, we think, well, yeah, we all know that. It, it, think of the message at that time, at that day, and in that city of Jerusalem. Speaking those words in the city where 42 days or so late earlier, they'd crucified Jesus. Somewhere in the midst of all that, you, Peter and the rest of the disciples were hiding, scared for their own lives but the power of the Holy Spirit working. And the Holy Spirit moves 
on the hearts of the believers. In verse 38, it says, repent and be baptized. But what happened first? He's got this big crowd, and he's giving this, this sermon. And while he's speaking, the Holy Spirit is working. And he's working in the hearts of unbelievers, just like he did in your heart and my heart before we accepted Christ. You may not know this, you and I couldn't accept Jesus unless the Holy Spirit was drawing us and wooing us and softening our heart to accept the truth. And that's what's taking place here. Peter's boldly proclaiming Jesus as the resurrected Lord. And then it says, the people listening were pierced to the heart. By what? The Holy Spirit. The Word of God. It was piercing their heart to the point where in my imagination, they are crying out almost in agony, what must we do to be saved? What the Holy Spirit is doing, He's just wrecking their heart. He is breaking down the hardest of hearts. And they're crying out, what must we do to be saved? And then Peter proclaims in Acts uh, verse 38, Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds this caveat that would have been new information. You will receive the Holy Spirit. You will receive the Holy Spirit. None of their priests, none of their Pharisees, none of their Sadducees had taught that before. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit when you repent and then be baptized. And sometimes in some places they... They connect the two saying you need to repent, yes, to get the forgiveness of sins, yes, then you can be saved, but you also need to be baptized. No, there's two different things taking place here. Repentance is something that takes place between me and God. The Holy Spirit convicts my heart. I respond and I am forgiven. The sins are dealt with. And then baptism is, it's important. It's important, he says, and be baptized. Baptism is something that takes place between man and man. It's something that is symbolic of our salvation, but it is not necessary for our salvation. Don't get confused by the way it's written there. Be baptized as a public demonstration, a public proclamation of what God has done in your heart by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 39, he says, this promise is available to all until Jesus comes back. That's us. Here we are almost 2,000 years later and we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior when we respond to the Holy Spirit drawing us and wooing us. And the Holy Spirit moves in as soon as we repent and acknowledge Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We now have a power residing in us to accomplish all that God has for us. The people were changed. The people were changed. You know, we talk about, we've heard about, we read about, some of us anyway, about revivals that have taken place. I want us to look at just a few verses here and say, and I'm going to say, this is what a pure revival might look like. Starting in verse 42 of chapter 2. The people have got saved. 3,000 souls have gotten saved. And it says, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. 
And day by day they were continuing with one mind in the temple, corporate gathering. They were breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And having favor with all the people. How in the world could that happen unless the Holy Spirit is moving? Having favor with all the people and was adding to their numbers daily those who were being saved. Revival. Revival takes place in an individual's heart. Revival can take corporately take place as hearts are in unity and being changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit. We sometimes get this crazy idea what revival is supposed to look like, at least some of us that have been around for a while. We've seen some messy revivals. Looking at this revival, you see first they were interested. What happened when they got saved? They wanted to study the Word, only they had the apostles' teaching. They knew the Old Testament if they were Jews. They wanted to know Jesus. There was a hunger put in them by the Holy Spirit. They needed to know the Word. They wanted to know more about who He was, what He did, and what He taught. Man alive, we have such an advantage. We've got His Word. Are we hungry for His Word? The Holy Spirit in us wants us in His Word because He knows it will reveal Jesus to us. It will renew our minds. It will transform us and allow us to walk in the freedom that Jesus died for. In the Word. Part of a personal revival, corporate revival. And then it goes on and says they were fellowshipping. And when I say fellowshipping, it's more like what I think a couple of the guys just mentioned. It's not just, hey, let's have a cup of coffee and talk about this. Is there a football game tonight? Talk about the Super Bowl. No, they were doing life together. They were sharing life. What's going on in your life? What's really going on in your life? Can you speak into my life? I'm struggling. They were doing life. Fellowshipping. We need to fellowship. Do life. Sharing communion together. Had a conversation with a couple guys uh, this week about, this past week, <coughs> about communion. Should we be taking it more often? Yes. Do we have to have a pastor present? No. Should we do it in our homes with our families? Yeah. Why? If you remember the scriptures I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, do this in remembrance. We need to remember. We need to be reminded of what Jesus did, what your salvation cost God. We need to remind it. And we need to proclaim it. We proclaim it by taking communion, receiving communion. If we would do it in our family, and I confess, I don't think I've ever done it in our house. I don't think. But when we do it, we're proclaiming to everybody there what Jesus did. And then as it said in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, we are then doing it in anticipation He's coming back. They were doing it every day, the way it sounds. They were doing it all the time, over and over. Man, Jesus had just died a couple months before. and been raised from the dead. But yet they were doing it so they wouldn't forget. That they wouldn't forget in the midst of the busyness of life, all that they had to do, what Jesus did for them. And then prayer. They were praying. Praying individually, praying corporately. They were praying. I think when you look at those four things, that is the foundation of the power and the glory for the church. To be in the Word, knowing and getting, getting more comfortable with, more familiar with, more intimate with Jesus. Spending time with brothers and sisters in Christ in real fellowship, doing life together. 
sharing communion, reminding us of what Jesus did, encouraging one another, and praying together. Prayer. The foundation of the church. It says there was a new sense of awe and reverence. Fear of the Lord. Signs and wonders were taking place by the Holy Spirit. They were sharing whatever they had when there was a need. If a need arose, they shared. With believers, by the way. That's who they were sharing with here. Believers. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Basically, we see here what had happened is Jesus became way more important than their possessions. In a materialistic culture and society, that's a challenge. Sometimes I've said and I've heard others say, you know, if you were in some tribe in some small country in a jungle somewhere in Africa and you've got nothing, all you've got is Jesus, it'd be easy to stay focused. Well, then get rid of your stuff. Lighten the load. If that's what's preventing you from being closer to Jesus. It's not a necessity. We don't have to. We shouldn't have to. Same Holy Spirit drawing me to Jesus is the same Holy Spirit they're going to have wherever they're at if we respond to the Holy Spirit's wooing. Corporate worship. It's interesting. Even though Jesus had been crucified, died, buried, and raised from the dead and ascended to heaven, they still went to the temple every day. Not to go sacrifice animals. To corporately come together with the body of Christ. Pray and worship. And it's really interesting. We sometimes think if we get a little too Jesus-like, we're going to be hated by everybody. You will be hated by some. But when the Holy Spirit is really moving, it says here, they found favor with all the people. And many were getting saved and added to the church every single day. Challenges me to think, is the world around me seeing enough of Jesus in me that they want to know what it is I have and I can share it with them and they're accepting Christ and I'm at it, we're adding to the church every day? Just think if every one of us, every one of us, you know, Brian has talked about multiplication many different times. You know, if we would just take that and every day, every, just say once a month, you know, let's not put too much pressure on ourselves. Once a month, we actually shared Jesus with somebody and got to pray with them. And if we're being led by the Holy Spirit, I guarantee it will happen. And every month, one person. You could do the math and the multiplication. It would be amazing what we could do just in our Judea, much less our Jerusalem. Being led by the Holy Spirit is the key. The Holy Spirit at work. So this is taking place, and then one morning... Oh, that clock is going fast. One morning, <coughs> Peter and John, or probably the rest of them, they're going to go worship corporately, and they, they're approaching the, the gate called Beautiful. They see ahead of them a lame beggar. And we learn as we read on, this guy is lame. He has to be helped to get to this plate by this gate. And he's been being carried there, and he's been crippled since birth. And he's over 40 years old. Most of the people would have seen this guy. And as Peter and John are approaching him, he says, look at me. Look at us. Now, how many, well, I won't add, this is rhetorical. How many of you have ever been walking down the street in maybe more of a metro area than here, and you see a beggar sitting there? Assuming you just didn't hurry up and run to the other side of the street, if you're going to really walk by him, how many of you make eye contact with that person? And you might. 
How many of those people make eye contact with you? Not very many. So Peter and John are walking and they say, hey, look at me. And then it says immediately he looked at them and he gave them her attention and it says he was expecting something. What was he expecting? Money, coins, for sure. That's what he's there for. Everybody know it. He's expecting these coins, but what does Peter say? Silver and gold, my pockets are empty. I have none. But what I do have, I will give to you. Get up and walk. Wow. My first question is, what I will have, I'm going to give to you. What did they have? What did they have? Power. Power and authority. They had power and authority. There's a difference. And as a believer, we have both. We have the authority and we have the power. When the Holy Spirit leads, you don't need to worry about the authority or the power. It's His. And He gets up, they grab Him by the hand and pull Him up. And if you study the words, the straightening and the strengthening of His ankles and His feet, basically there's a whole lot of medical terminology implied there. Everything that was bent and twisted and all of a sudden it's all just moving back into place. He's up, jumping, dancing, going crazy. A religious fanatic. And he didn't even know Jesus yet. What I have, I'll give you. I've got the authority. Where is the authority? And you'll read over and over in this section of Scripture, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. The authority. The power. The dunamis of the Holy Spirit in you. Moving in you. Matthew 28.18 Jesus came to His disciples and He says this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. To Me, He said. It's been given to Me. I have all authority. Okay? How does that help Me? That's good, Jesus. You've got all this authority. Well, in Mark chapter 16, when He's commissioning the disciples and laying out the Great Commission, here's what He says. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name. In my name. In my authority. In my name they will drive out demons, speak in new tongues, pick up snakes with their hands, drink deadly poison, won't hurt them. They will place their hands on the sick people and they will get well. In my name. It's a phrase. And in the Greek, this is what it means. To do something by one's command and authority, acting on his behalf and promoting his cause. In my name. In my name means the authority that I have, I'm giving it to you in my name to do my purposes, to do and carry out my cause. The only way we can fulfill the Great Commission is with that authority. Paul and Peter, Paul, John and Peter, when they're standing there, Peter says, why are you guys all looking at us like we did something wonderful? Well, it was pretty cool. I'd like to have been Peter and pull that guy up. But Peter's looking at us. What, what are you looking at us like that for? 
It's not us. This did not come from any human power, he says. Where did it come from? The authority in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3, verse 16, it reads this way. By faith in the name of Jesus, my faith in the name of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, who He is, what He did, what He accomplished, in His name, in His name, this man whom you see and know, you know who he is. I mean, he's talking to a group of people. They can't deny this. This man who you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see with your own eyes. And then he says, repent. And turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that refreshing can come from the Lord. The name of Jesus, the authority in that name, go and fulfill the great commission in my name with my authority, with the power that is already in you. It's there. And now the authority that I have releases that power and allows it to be effective for my glory because it's in my name you're doing these things. And the crowd was just loving it, except for a small group. The religious nuts. The religious people. It says they were there and the chief, some of the chief priests were there. The chief guy of the guards of the temple, he was there. And it says some Sadducees were there and they didn't like it. So, what are they not liking? They're not liking him raising this guy who has been crippled for over 40 years and speaking in the name of Jesus and ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. They didn't like it, so what did they do? They arrested him. Let's get him out of here. They arrested him. The next morning, they let him out. And they bring him to the council, the Sanhedrin. And it, it, it sounds like they put him in the center. You know, all of the big shots are sitting around. You go stand down there. We're going to ask you a few questions. And this is what they're doing to him. Persecution is beginning. And what triggered it? Preaching the resurrection, doing signs and wonders and miracles, and preaching it all in the name of Jesus. The authority of that name. In Acts chapter 4, verse 2, it said they were greatly disturbed, the religious leaders, because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus' name the resurrection of the dead. That's what ticked them off. And they say in Acts 4, verse 7, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? This is the big deal. This is what they're concerned about. They're seeing something that they can't do. They're seeing something they've never saw before and they're hearing teaching and preaching that they've never heard before. They don't know anything about this Holy Spirit. They don't understand the resurrection of the dead. They don't understand the forgiveness of sin. And they're hearing it and they're not liking it. And their question is, in what power or what name did you do this? And then... Peter answers in verse 8. It says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, Peter is answering, led by the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit behind those words. He says, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called today, account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel know this. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's the authority. 
that we're doing this in. Whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And that's why this man stands before you right now healed. It's the authority of the name of Jesus. Not law. Not works. He concludes here in verse 12, he says, Salvation is found in no one else. Man, they are not about impressing people. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to man by which he must be saved. When we get accused as Christians of being narrow-minded when it comes to salvation, yes, we are. Jesus died for everybody on planet earth, past, present, and future. Salvation is available to everybody, no matter where they come from, what they believe, what they think. But the only way to be saved is to accept Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, as your personal Lord and Savior, acknowledging He died for your sins and you received the gift of salvation through Him. And lo and behold, the Holy Spirit moves in and you are now filled with power and you have the authority in the name of Jesus to fulfill your destiny. But there's only one way. The poor guys in the Sanhedrin, I can just picture in my mind, there they stand. We're, we think we got them outsmarted. We're all around them. These are uneducated fishermen for crying out loud. Who do they think they are? We ask them what authority and what name. Who, who, you know, who's your teacher? And they declare Jesus. So they say, you know, we've got to take a break. Time out. Would you guys please leave for a few minutes? We've got to talk. And the conversation as we see here is like, holy cow, what are we going to do with this? They healed this guy. There's a miracle like nobody's ever seen here before. We've never, seen, we've never done anything like this. We can't. How do we deny it? Everybody knows this guy was crippled for 40 plus years. What are we going to do? They don't have a clue. They don't know how to compete with natural mind and flesh against the Holy Spirit and the authority in the name of Jesus. Well, let's bring them back in and let's threaten them as best we can. And what do they threaten them with? In Acts 4, 18, it says, They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Remember the Scripture says, Who are these guys? I'm paraphrasing. Who are these guys? These are a bunch of fishermen. How come they're teaching with so much authority? Because they have the authority in the name of Jesus. How do they do such amazing things as grab the hand of a guy who's been crippled for over 40 years and say, walk in his legs and feet and his ankles. He's healed and he's jumping around dancing and we're seeing it with our own eyes. What do we do? They didn't understand the power of the Holy Spirit. The same power. Same Holy Spirit that's in me and you. Same power. They didn't get it. Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. We cannot help but speak. We cannot help but speak. You will be my witnesses. You will be. You can't help it. If you cooperate at all with the Holy Spirit, you will be my witnesses. So they threatened them a little bit more and said, okay, go on, hoping they'd go away. They went to their companions. They went to their friends. And they told them everything that had happened. They'd been arrested. They'd been thrown in jail. They'd been threatened. And they decided to do something about it. They said, let's pray. If you're not familiar with their prayer, you should really read that prayer. Maybe I better. Did I put it on a slide? Now, what would we pray? Dear Lord, protect us. Send your angels around us. Guard us. Keep us safe. 
give us wisdom to know not to walk into the dark alleys? No. That is not how they prayed. Here's how they prayed. Lord, take note of their threats and grant that we, your bondservants, may speak your word with confidence. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders will take place through the name of the Holy Servant Jesus. And then when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. God, they threatened us. Give us the boldness to go out there and get in their face. That paraphrase wasn't what I had in mind. But that's basically what he said. Don't be afraid. If I'm sending you, if I've called you, I will protect you. I will provide whatever you need. Go in my authority and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Church, that's for us today. We need to grab a hold of this truth. It's a truth from the Word of God. Jesus declares, all authority has been given to me. Now go, and in my name you're going to do these things. And the power of the Holy Spirit is in us. We have to go past our natural understanding and by faith walk out and believe who we are according to what the Scripture says. And it's, not, it's, it's just like Peter and John. Don't, don't look at us. Don't get your eyes on men. We can't do anything. You can make the most convincing argument for salvation, but if the Holy Spirit's not working on whoever you're talking to, it ain't going to work. Nothing will happen. But if the Holy Spirit is working, a crazy fisherman who's outspoken, puts his foot in the mouth all the time, will speak the words anointed by the Holy Spirit, and thousands will be saved. Well, let's be that. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I do thank you and praise you for the Holy Spirit. God, give us, give us sensitive ears. Help us in our heart and our spirit to hear the Holy Spirit quickly and clearly. God, our spirit, your spirit, our one. God, that we have your power in us. You have given us authority in who Jesus is and what he accomplished. Father, that we would walk out our lives accomplishing those things and being all that you want us to be for your glory. God, that we would not be a work glove laying on the floor with no life. That we would be your sons and daughters filled with your Holy Spirit, emboldened by the authority that you've given us and walk it out in power. And God, as we do all these things, may we be like Jesus. May we humble ourselves before you. May we demonstrate your love and compassion and mercy towards all that we come in contact with. God, pray that you would just give us spiritual ears to hear. That like you spoke to your disciples, we will be your witnesses wherever we are. Ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.